Hello, Aspies, and welcome to another edition of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Joshua Schwartz, an Aspie just like all of us. Joshua, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Reed. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am 27 years old. Um, I live in the Bay Area in California in the United States, and um, I was recently diagnosed as autistic this year. Um, so for me, just this past year has been a really intense journey to fit all of the old pieces of myself and how I saw myself, um, into this sort of, uh, new version and starting to piece together, um, the things that I've been struggling with. Um, and it's been a lot of positives and a lot of negatives. So tell me when you got your diagnosis, what was the first reaction that came to your mind? Yeah. Um, for me, it was sort of just obvious. It was, um, you know, just like, well, yeah, okay. Of course this is, you know, this is how I am. Um, I feel like I've had relatively good insight, um, just in general into who I am. So for me, it was really relieving just to be able to put a label to how I've been feeling. That was, it was a lot of relief in that moment. I really understand. I'm pretty sure a lot of people, when they get diagnosed, it kind of opens that light bulb up to them and says, oh, maybe that, that explains why I act the way I do. Mm-hmm. The same feeling you had? Yeah, very much so. Um, at least, you know, on a, on a basic, on a basic level, um, it was, it, it was exciting to at least have a lead to explore, um, because so much of my life has just been trying to figure out why I'm acting the way I am, why I feel the way I do most of the time. Um, and you know, really what led up to my autism diagnosis was, was trying to treat my lifelong depression. Um, just constantly going to different doctors, um, different people trying to assess uh, the issues I'm having with suicidality and with, um, with very low mood. Um, because eventually I just couldn't really treat it. And I, so I started to think, well, what else could be happening here? Um, and that's sort of what started my journey towards, uh, autism. Ah, okay. That, makes, that sounds very interesting. Now you, you're working like m- most of the SPs out there. How do mm-hmm. you deal with that, with your autism and your social anxiety? Yeah, it's, it's really hard because it brings up the issue of, of coming out as autistic at work. Um, because I think like a lot of people, unless I receive accommodations for a lot of things, um, I, I struggle a lot. Um, and I have to come out as autistic in order to receive a lot of those accommodations. Mm -hmm. And so it's, for me, a lot of the time, it's a struggle to come out to my coworkers and to receive accommodations. And so I can go long times at jobs, you know, um, just putting up with really bright lights and really loud sounds. 
Um, and if I don't feel comfortable coming out to my coworkers, that poses a huge problem in that way. So have you come out to your coworkers? Yeah, I have. Um, and what has been interesting in my, in my experience of that is that it does relieve a lot of those issues that I experience, um, but it also creates new ones. What kind of questions or what kind of, how have they received it? I mean, you, um, I would say that largely at, at work, um, I have been very grateful and appreciative of the responses I've received. Um, people don't tend to probe me very much when I come out to them, which I'm thankful for. Um, I don't want a, just like a ton of questions about my identity just because I'm sharing something vulnerable with somebody. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's mostly the, the reception I've gotten um, where they kind of just take it normally and just ask, you know, if, if there's anything that, that I can be accommodated for to let them know. Um, but interestingly, coming out to friends has been a lot more, I've, been, I've gotten a lot more of those responses of like, wow, I never would have thought that you were autistic. And um, <laughs> even to some more negative ones, like, you know, oh, I'm sorry to hear that or something. So you get more of the, as most YouTubers have put it, the top 10 things you shouldn't say to someone who's autistic. <laughs> From your friends, no doubt. Right. Yeah, it, I've definitely experienced that a lot already. Yeah, I mean, I guess when it comes to coming out to your friends, it's, I guess it's something they don't know how to handle or they just are in shock so they don't know what to say. So the most inappropriate thing sometimes comes out and <laughs> they don't know what's inappropriate until you just say, hey, that's a little bit rude or uncalled for. Right. Are most of your friends more susceptible to uh, you being autistic? I mean, yes, I would say so. And even even when you know there are instances of people, you know, doing accidental microaggressions um, and just kind of saying the wrong thing, like those people are still all very supportive, you know, of my identity and of my explorations. Um, and so in that way, I'm very grateful for all the friends that I have, for sure. I mean, like I, can, like I have to say, I mean, us Aspies need to stick together. And friends is a very big thing for us. Mm -hmm. The more friends we have, the more we feel welcome. Mm -hmm. I only have a few friends, but I'd rather have good friends who understand me than a lot of friends that don't understand me and just don't tolerate me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I find that my situation is very similar. I only have a handful of friends, um, but we all know each other extremely well. We're very well connected. Um, and that that's what works for me, I guess. So what is a day-to-day -day life for you? I mean, what kind of things do you do to help you get through your day? Yeah, I mean, lately it's looking very different. Um, the landscape of my life has just changed so much being home more than I have ever been. Um, and 
you know, so where normally my life would look a lot like me just trying to connect as much as possible with people throughout the day. I'm, I'm really just entertaining myself a lot lately and trying to, um, adapt to being less social, um, and being stuck inside more. Um, because just in general, being, being stuck inside also gives me a lot of anxiety, a lot of feelings of claustrophobia. Um, I like to be able to be outdoors, just walk around, feel like I can breathe. And so it's, yeah, just been trying to entertain myself, playing games, um, gardening, playing music. Um, I love to play music, um, watching a lot of TV. Yeah. So, um, how is, how long have you had your job? I mean, is this your longest job you've held? No. So, um, I'm currently in a graduate program, a master's of social work program. Um, and I am currently in an internship, uh, providing individual therapy services, um, to people experiencing mental health crisis. And I, so I've only been doing this for about four months, four months. Wow. Yeah. So it's very new and I'm only going to be doing it for another four months for another four months. Yeah. Then what, then what are you going to do after that? Then I graduate and I finish my internship here um, doing this crisis work. And then I have to find a job (laughs) to support myself. How is school life for you? Because I know there are some aspects that have find it hard to tackle a full load, even three course work, because they feel that overstimulation and they don't understand math and they struggle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I struggled really hard throughout my, um, throughout high school was really hard for me. Almost completely failed out of high school and ended up having to go to three or four different high schools before I found one that I could actually work well in that, that knew how to accommodate me and work with me. Um, and that was a big part of the struggle of not being diagnosed growing up, I think, um, it was really hard to just communicate to people what I needed because I didn't really know what I needed. Um, so, and then undergrad, uh, was pretty difficult. I did my bachelor's in, um, psychology and, you know, I really struggle with numbers. Um, I'm not very numbers oriented people. And so I had to take less classes. I couldn't do full-time classes because I would have, I knew myself and I knew I would have, been too stressed out and I probably would have dropped out. Um, so I just, I took, uh, you know, like half time courses, um, because I had to take all that kinds of math for general education. Um, and I just had to really take it slow. And I think that that paid off for me because I did well. Did you find math, your math classes, the most hardest classes to like get through because your mind couldn't understand how to do simple or more advanced mathematics? Yeah, it, it kind of seemed like my, my, like the way that I approach logic just didn't really mesh with the way that like mathematics approaches logic because 
I just could never really understand why we were ever doing what we were doing. And that made it really hard for me to, to just understand it conceptually. Um, I just never, my brain doesn't understand the logic of how, you know, you get from A to B in math most of the time. Um, so it's just a constant struggle to just understand constantly why I'm doing what I'm doing and how it makes sense. Yeah. And then what advice would you give to those who want to get into school, who want to go for their degree, but know they're going to hit struggles along the way? I would say to only do what you feel you're capable of. I think you shouldn't feel bad about doing halftime school. I think there's a lot of pressure sometimes in the United States to, to do something full time, whether it's work or whether it's school. Um, but I don't think that works for everybody. Um, so I, I think it's important to do what you're comfortable with. Um, and to learn what you're comfortable with. Um, and also to, to practice not being afraid asking for help um, because I needed a lot of help in, in school. And I had to, um, when I started to hit rock bottom and couldn't really support myself anymore, I had to ask for tutors who could help me. Um, you know, I had to um, find accommodations um, for myself a little bit. Did you manage to seek out the disability department at your school? Um, I did it in undergrad because I, I didn't really have, um, like I didn't have any awareness of my autism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just didn't in general have much awareness of how my ADHD affected my education, I think. Um, but since learning I'm autistic, um, I've actually, been accessing my graduate school's um, accommodations a lot and have found them so amazingly helpful and wished that I would have done that in my undergrad. Uh, did you teach yourself any kind of like study tips to help you like when it came time to study for an exam or anything? Did you literally sit down and say, okay, I'm going to teach myself how to study properly? Yeah, sort of. I, I would say that for me, like, I, I think I learned that I had to study differently from how my teachers were telling me to study. And it took me a while to realize that. Um, for me, like, studying on, on exams the way that my school did them anyway, multiple choice exams that are sort of just meant for you to regurgitate information. I found that for me, the, the best way to, to do those types of tests is to cram, is to just practice everything right before the test. And for me, all everything is very fresh. But throughout my education, my teachers told me to never do that. So <laughs> I always struggled taking tests because I would try to study the way they told me to, which was they say, you know, study a little bit every night, do this and that. And I would do that. But by the time I take the test, I forgot like all this information and it just didn't work for me. So like my advice in terms of studying and testing and homework is listen to yourself and sure listen to your teachers if they have good advice but also pay attention when that advice doesn't work for you because a lot of the times i just struggled with with my teacher's advice not realizing that i could just 
figure out what works better for me, which was, in my experience, was just to cram. That's, that's how I got information in and how I really retain it. Yeah, I mean, for me, in my master's degree, when it came time for our exams, it's like, like you said, they expect you to regurgitate a full year of information to just <laughs> literally go inside your head and pull all this information out like they expect us to remember it all. And mm-hmm. I figured, oh, my best, my best bet is to cram, like you said. And I tried right. that, and it didn't work for me. And I was beginning to panic, so I put a call out to my friends in my Facebook group. I'm, I was part of a society, and I was like, listen, guys, I need help. Any ideas how I should study? And one of my friends came back with, try taking five minutes on, ten minutes off or 10 minutes on, five minutes off. It'll let mm-hmm. your mind kind of go through mu- mu- uh, go for the information and then just be, and then it's, it's able to hold it better. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day I had a well-being advisor who said to me, there's a difference between knowing your material and understanding it. And I was walking down this path one day and all of a sudden I was going through all my information for my class and I, be, I was beginning to understand what I was talking about mm-hmm. and that I was able to get through my master's course but I did not I failed one course and I failed my dissertation but I still graduated with a postgrad certificate and still for me that's an accomplishment someone who's literally traveled across the seas to England for his master's taken a very advanced course and did it all on his own. Yeah. And anyways, you, we were talking earlier about your depression. What ways did you find work for you? Yeah. Um, like I, you know, uh, trying lots of medications sort of was the first road that I started on because I was diagnosed with depression when I was very young, when I was like 12 or 13. Um, So I didn't really know much about, you know, what I was supposed to do to treat my depression. So a lot of that was in the hands of my parents, in the hands of my therapist. Um, And, you know, they all suggested Western medication. And so that was a lot of the stuff that I started to go on. And, um, you know, long story short, because I've been doing that ever since, you know, Western medications have largely not worked for me. They've reduced, you know, some symptoms here and there, but I've at this point pretty much cycled through all of them and am considered to have treatment resistant depression, which means that my depression is unaffected by specifically Western medications. Um, And so I've had to find a lot of other ways to treat my depression throughout the years. Um, and a lot of what I've explored is just things that improve my mood and my well-being, um, just pursuing hobbies and passions. Um, I practice martial arts. I play music. I love reading and writing. Um, anything, finding anything that I can do that brings me happiness uh, is, is what I pursue to persuade, uh, my depression. Yeah. I mean, cause like I said, my friend has got severe depression and 
he's always in the pit in the bottom and he's trying to claw his way out. And the only thing that really brings him joy at this point is his boyfriend. He's like, when mm-hmm. he's with his boyfriend, everything disappears. I'm like, well, maybe have you thought about talking to your doctors about using medical marijuana? Because it may give you that same feeling of euphoria you wanted. Mm. Because there's nothing he's tried. He can't find the passion in his hobbies that he once had. Because he's yeah. on severe other medication, too, that's kind of zapped him. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a part of the struggle for me is my passions are what help me with depression, but my depression makes it very difficult for me to pursue my passions. A lot of the times I don't feel the pleasure in those activities that I want to and that I know that I can. Um, And so in that way, my depression is a a difficult thing to battle. because the thing that I use to battle it is also something that's not always accessible to me. Yeah. Have you had days where it's hard for you to get out of the bed? Oh my God. Yeah. That's like, you know, almost every day <laughs> if I'm being realistic. Um, yeah. I mean, I just recently wrote a blog post on having daily suicidal ideation Um you know, like you described your friend's experience sort of with life being a pit that he's constantly trying to crawl out of. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of what my experience is like with suicidal ideation is just, it's every day. And, um, it's an everyday struggle to pick up the things that bring me joy, um, to get out of bed and do those things. I mean, my friend, I mean, every so often, all of a sudden, he'd be like, you think I should KML? I'm like, what do you mean KML? Kill myself. I'm like, no. I mean, look at it this way, I keep telling him. You got family that loves you. You got a boyfriend that cares about you. You got me. And do you want those people to be sad? And he's like, no. I'm like, then there you go. And he just, and that just keeps him happy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of my motivation, I think, to, to stay alive is, is based around my inherent connection with people and my love for them and my understanding that they care about me. Yeah. I mean, family should always be one of your driving forces to keep you going. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, how is your social life normally? I mean, you said you had friends. I mean, do you have, how are you with like the other gender and stuff? You get shy? Yeah. I'm pretty open. Um, I honestly love meeting new people. Um, That's definitely something that that brings me a lot of fulfillment and and socializing. in small doses, yeah. <laughs> I like to meet people in very small doses, but I do love to connect and I love to learn about other people. And I think, you know, that's just in general, a great way to live life. Um, I think everybody has something amazing to teach somebody else. Um, 
And the selfish part of me wants to learn from everyone, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with your social anxieties in normal day life? I mean, I'm sure you've got a lot of things going on. You have noises and you've got people everywhere. How do you deal with that combatant? Yeah, sometimes I just need to, uh, you know, be by myself. Um, it's and that's something that um sadly i didn't really learn for a long time is you know i i never really felt like it was okay for me to just like abandon people and be like i need to just you know get away from all of this um and so that's definitely been something that um has been very helpful for me in dealing with social anxiety is just when to acknowledge that I'm at my limit and to put myself in a space that is comfortable for me. And that's one of the important things I've learned is learning to read your own body, because if you're able to do that, you're able to stop yourself before you hit a meltdown. Mm-hmm. Have you had any meltdowns? For sure. Um, a, a few times in my, you know, recent adulthood, uh, I've had plenty as a child, as an adolescent growing up, um, controlling my emotions was something that has, you know, it's been an ongoing journey for me. Um, I did, you know, my connection with emotion is very interesting because I just have a lot of disconnection between my understanding of my emotions um so it's been a long journey to be able to understand which emotions i'm feeling and when and how i can control them and so um there have been several times in my adulthood when i was not at the level to understand my stressors to be able to remove myself from them to the point where you know i can like punch a hole in my wall Mm -hmm. Or, you know, something to that effect. Where your aggression kicks in. Exactly. You had had some dealings with your aggression. Yeah, for sure. All right. That was my next question is, how do you handle your aggression? Yeah. So, you know, nowadays I am a lot more able to understand sort of why I'm feeling aggressive. And I I think that that's been what's allowed me to channel my, my emotion into something that works for me because I'm able to understand, okay, this is why I need to get this aggression out. So how can I do something else that also targets the same reason why I'm feeling this way? Um, And so now I have tools for those moments. I have these, things that I can do that channel my aggression in the same way that's less destructive to property or to myself. Um, and, um, so I guess to give an example, um, when, you know, people don't listen to my accommodations and I'm saying I need the volume in this room to be reduced and it continues to happen and continues to happen. Um, you know, now I can leave a room and I can also 
choose from like a number of things that I need to do, like meditating or moving my body and just dancing. Um, just understanding that I need to move my body and that that's like acceptable to just thrash around, you know, um, but do so in a way that's, um, yeah, generally less destructive. That's good. And I'm taking it, your work is very accommodating with you with like understanding like noises are too loud. Can you lower them? The light, the lights are too bright. Can you lower them? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think an example of really excellent accommodations from my experience is, you know, when I told my supervisor, the lights in this building just don't work for me. Like they're incredibly bright fluorescent lights. Um, what can we do to change this? Not only did he explore with me like possible ways that we could fix this situation, not just for myself, but for somebody, anybody else who's experiencing the same distress mm -hmm. or worse. Um, but he also just turned off all the lights and was just like, you know, if this is what makes you comfortable, then, you know, this is, this is the only solution right now. So let's do it. So we just had our whole meeting in the dark, basically. <laughs> and I felt like that was just like the most awesome thing he, anybody could have done in that moment. I think a lot of people on the spectrum would love to have a company as understanding as the one you're at. Because yeah. there are so many out companies out there that do not understand what autism is, don't know how to work with it. Even organizations mm -hmm. like, I've had problems with museums that I've volunteered at. I volunteered at the Field Museum for a year and a half. And through that time, I was approached three times by my supervisor telling me I'm standing too close to the volunteers. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why didn't they tell me? Why did they wait so long to come to me and tell me? Do you, and then, the third time around, when they let me go, the woman in HR had the audacity to tell me, oh, I thought by giving you a month off, you'd come back and be a different person. I'm thinking, I have autism. That doesn't change. Learn how to deal with people on the who are disabled. Yeah, exactly. They're not trying to accommodate. No, they never did accommodate for me at all. I mean, I was lucky when I volunteered at the Adler Planetarium. My main supervisor was on the spectrum and her three kids were too. So she understood what I was going through. And mm. at the time I was still in, in her department, she came, we, we would have daily meetings at the end of the day to talk about how my day is. Is there anything we can do that can help me more? And then she's like, do you want me to work with you on a set of soft skills? And I mean, definitely, because that can help me on the floor when I'm dealing with the public. And she was more than receptive. And then they moved me out of her department somewhere where I was not in, I was not in the public eye. I was in a little room doing menial stuff on the computer where I was labeling stuff and they're, I was bored out of my mind and I must have self-sabotaged myself because I was so bored. 
that they just let me go. Mm. But my supervisor was the one who truly understood me. Right. And not, you're really going to find that these days is a company that understands the autistic scale. Mm-hmm. So you really lucked out. I did. I did. I feel like um, I'm very lucky uh, just in general, um, yeah, to be working with the people I'm working with. Now let me ask you a question. When you apply to, for jobs, you check that little box that says I am disabled, right? Um, I actually haven't. Oh. So you hide it from yeah. companies. Yeah, I've never, um, I just never really identified that way before. Um, identifying as uh, disabled is very new to me. Ah, okay. um, yeah. What advice do you have for those who are just venturing out into trying to find work or trying to get to school? What advice do you have for them? I would say to really think about the experience you have in your interview. Um, if you want to work with those people, I think in my experience working, I, I going in, I thought a lot about the job. I thought, is this a job that I want to go in to do every day that I think that I can do well? Um, you know, but I didn't put as much thought into the people that I was working with. Do I work well with them? Do I like going into work with them every day? Um, you know, do I like the culture that they um, endorse? Um, those weren't really things that I considered when I was considering what job is best for me. Now it's the, the forefront. It's one of the only things I think about is can I come into this job every day and love the people that I work with, feel happy, feel respected? Um, that is that is what's most important to me now. Yeah, I, I believe that it is a big important issue, especially those of us on the spectrum need to find a company that's susceptible to our accommodations that are willing to help us instead of work against us. Yeah. I mean, it is so important. That's why I've pushed with my friend. I'm like, when you're interviewing with a company, I told them, you're not just, they're not just interviewing you. You're interviewing them to see if you're comfortable. I'm like, do yep. you want to work for a company that's going to work against you or work with a company that's working with you to help you? Yeah. I'm like, do you just apply to apply? He's like, yeah, I don't care about the company. I'm like, that's not the way to go because the minute you walk into an interview, they're going to see that in you. They're going to see mm -hmm. you don't care about them. They're going to see you didn't do the research on the company. And they're going to figure, oh, he's only in it for the money. We don't want that. We want somebody that actually cares about the product or the company itself. Yeah. But Walking around when you're outside before COVID, how do you deal with your stimulus? Try not to be overstimulated, the sounds, the people. Do you wear headphones to like bleed out the noise? Do you wear sunglasses to cut down the sun? I'm constantly listening to music for sure <laughs> when I'm outside. Um, 
not only does having the earbuds in help to reduce the sound that's happening, but also just having music in my head helps me also to reduce anxiety. Um, so that's something I've always done. Um, ever since I was a kid, I was listening to music, walking around, um, carrying my tape player, carrying my Walkman. Um, you know, nowadays everything's just on my phone, yeah. but <laughs> um, that's always just made me feel very relaxed when I'm outside. Um, and I, I do try to work on, you know, not always having to, to listen to music when I'm outside. Um, a part of, of my daily practice, uh, when I, I take the public transit to work, for example. How do you deal with that? Because I know with your social anxiety, especially pre-COVID, I'm pretty sure your buses get jammed and you, with social, yep. you don't, you're not comfortable with people like right on top of you or even sitting next to you on the bus. Yeah. Sometimes I get so overwhelmed. I want to just scream, you know? <laughs> um, and sometimes I will do something like that <laughs> and I'll just sort of like start drumming or do something. Uh, but when I'm really trying to just internally calm myself, sometimes I just try to imagine that like nobody's on the bus anymore. I try to imagine, make myself really feel like what would this space feel like if it was empty? Um, because I am recognizing that I'm in this large enclosed space and that there's just lots of people around me, but it's not always like this. Um, and so just trying to remember the impermanence of those situations sort of helps me sometimes. That's good. I mean, especially with social anxiety, I know a lot of people, I mean, like my friend, his sister has got it to the point where she's got PTSD, where she can't even make a phone call, where she gets so, she, she just gets so worked up. How do you, have you traveled outside of California? Yeah, I've, um, I've done a bit of traveling um, just for fun. I've done a little bit of traveling. I went on my honeymoon in Europe. Oh, you're married. Yeah, I've been married for the past three years. How do you handle that with your social anxiety? Um, honestly, my spouse really helps me with my social anxiety. I feel we've known each other for so long. Um, we've been dating for 10 years. Wow, um, <laughs> and so they're somebody I feel just like very comfortable being around. And, um, they also help me like when I go out, um, they're sometimes a source of support for me, just Good. feeling less anxious. And it really helps to have that, that partner. Yeah. And she, I'm taking it. She understands it and is very, is almost there for you all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've been very supportive of me. Um, throughout learning that I'm autistic and this whole new journey. Um, and yeah, have just been an invaluable support system for me. That's very good. I mean, I've really talked to many Aspies that are actually married, but it's a good thing to have somebody there as your support system. Cause sometimes it's not good yeah. to be alone. Exactly. It's, it's very helpful. And, um, it's challenging too, as somebody who has struggles socializing, just 
in general, like I, I have a tendency to say the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just tend to offend people pretty easily. Um, and so yeah. it's a struggle to maintain that like close relationship sometimes. Um, but overall it's, you know, I think it's, it, for me, it's been worth, uh, the benefits. How do you handle the non-filter issue? Um, well, learning I'm autistic has helped <laughs> and, you know, having my partner be supportive on me with this journey, they've been learning a lot about autism as well. And we've both been learning a lot about more about who I am. Um, and that's helped, you know, in communicating about some of these issues we've been having that we didn't really have the words for before. Um, but also, you know, therapy, um, you know, we're in couples therapy and that is something that helps us a lot with figuring out the things that we just can't figure out on our own. We don't have the insight. Yeah. Back to travel. How do you, how did you handle being on that pl on the plane for six hours? I'm guessing you've Europe is six hours, depending where you were going in Europe. Yeah, it was, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much always anxious when I travel. Um, and what's helped me is that, you know, a lot, largely I've traveled with people. Um, and so that's helped to have my, you know, friends or family with me. Um, because yeah, inevitably I get anxious, um, between having to navigate unfamiliar spaces, mm -hmm. especially spaces that are crowded with people. Um, it's overwhelming. It overwhelms my sense of direction, <laughs> where to go. Um, and so, it's, it's helped to travel with people. Um, but the times that I've traveled by myself, um, I, I just try to bring things with me to help with that stress. Like I, I always bring a deck of cards. Mm -hmm. I love to play solitaire and that can just keep me entertained and keep me de-stressed. Something I do a lot when I'm on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I know what you're talking about. I traveled by myself around Europe for six weeks. And the one place I had the hardest time was Italy. I got mm. so overwhelmed. Like you said, I lost my sense of direction and it took me to stop in three or four different places before I went into a police station in the train station and spoke to somebody behind the glass window who didn't speak English. I said, just point to this road. If this is the road that goes back to the, my hotel. And he's not, not mm -hmm. he said, yes, and not in his head. And I was thankful. But yeah, I mean, travel, I, it's nice to know I'm not the only one that deals with travel anxiety. I mean, anytime do you get that feeling like if you, when you're going anywhere new as well. Yeah. Um, I get very anxious when I have to go even to a new place locally. Just, it's a very similar feeling to traveling even somewhere in a foreign country. Just that feeling of unknowability and, and that sense of, you know, what if I do get lost? What if, um, you know, I do find myself in, in X or Y situation. Um, and, those unknowability factors for me even come up in times when I travel to places that I am familiar with, you know, just like what's going to happen in between. Um, 
and yeah yeah because i've had that a lot especially like going to a doctor or going even to a concert or even to a play i get Mm -hmm. knocks in my stomach until i get there and someone once asked me how i deal with that and and my way of dealing with it is i just tell myself i'll be fine once they get on the plane and once they get off the plane into my hotel that's when i'll be okay yeah but anyways it's been great talking with you you too Reed. thanks yeah. so much for being on the show and let's keep in touch joshua yeah for sure i'll definitely be sure to remain in, in touch with you and um yeah, I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast. All right. Thank you. And just keep it up. And if you have any questions, just feel free to drop me a line. Will do. You as well. Right. I'm, I'm always here. All right. Nice talking with you. You too. Take care, thank Reed. Bye-bye. Bye. We live on board.